All right, so we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and what we have entitled the Apostles' Freedom. The Apostles' Freedom. So we look at uh, verse 1, and as we examine verse 1, I will read that particular verse along with verse 2, just to set our context for what is immediately uh, at hand. But verse uh, 1 of chapter 9 says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Throughout this, why I have uh, entitled this The Apostles' Freedom is because Paul spoke from the standpoint of being absolutely free in Christ. And so with that freedom, we talked about how that touches certain areas, especially in the conflicts and the things that arose in the church in Corinth and how Paul wanted the Corinthians themselves to be free, uh, but how so so many things that came to enslave them and so many things born of their own hearts uh, were a cause for enslavement, that Paul uh, wanted them to understand this in the matter of practical uh, living, but also in the matter of the conscience. Uh, Also, he will then deal with how things work together with respect to Christian freedom in the life of the church, the practice of the gifts, the Lord's Supper, and all the things that uh, proceed from that and that are consequences from that. But Paul spoke from the standpoint of being free. And ultimately, he wanted to let the Corinthians know that he was not enslaved to anyone or anything, neither to the weaker brother's consciences, because he is certainly free to uh, to designate the actions that he takes based on his freedom in Christ and his holiness in Christ, but he's free to act in accords with God's will, uh, even if there are brothers who hold weaker consciences. But he wasn't a slave to the Corinthians themselves either. So he wasn't a slave uh, to the Corinthian society. He wasn't enslaved to the Corinthians' uh, sins. He wasn't enslaved to the people there, nor to their consciences. But ultimately, he was a slave of Christ in the true sense of that term, because so many use that term and actually mean it as being a slave to others. They just act like you're being a slave to Christ, but really you're a slave to them, their will, their whims, the things they desire. But Paul really elevated the Corinthian mindset to wanting them to be ultimately free in Christ, to be slaves of Christ, yet designating true freedom for them. Yet in that, he practiced his freedom as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. So he was an apostle. So then we ask the question, what does then this freedom entail? Because freedom, when it's mentioned, especially Christian liberty or Christian freedom, it's never outside of its context. It's never just freedom is put forward and we're to determine how we then uh, partake in free acts. But rather, Paul sets up a series of rhetorical questions to defend his freedom before the Corinthians. So here you begin to see that we're moving into the area of more uh, more overt challenges to Paul's authority as an apostle. Whereas before, those challenges are implied. There's often questions put forward. In the last uh, chapter, even leading up to this one, you see that the Corinthians begin to push back toward Paul's Uh, authority in his apostleship and they do so here because he feels it's necessary to defend it but we also know 
as we have noticed in other places, even within this letter, that Paul is correcting a wrong perception or wrong view of his apostleship. So there is a wrong view that is prevailing amongst the Corinthians. And he'll bring it up again uh, if you look at uh, if you look at Corinthians, first uh, Corinthians chapter 10. He'll bring it up again uh, and also in first Corinthians chapter 11 when he revisits the factions. And so he'll talk about the need for the factions to exist only for this purpose, so as to display that which is true. So as this unity will have its place so that you can see true unity uh, taking place as well. And so I believe that all of this lends to his defense of his, his apostleship overall, but how that apostleship worked itself out in the life of the church. I believe he alludes to this in verse 2. He alludes to this in verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle... Okay, so who is he referring to? He's referring to some who perhaps believe that he isn't an apostle. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So you see here, the, these are, as I mentioned, the first challenges, the first open challenges to Paul's apostleship. It has certainly been challenged along the way. With respect to the factions, but I would say more so challenged implicitly by flattery. Now you're starting to get to a place where they're even questioning whether he's an apostle before they questioned whether he would come to them. But now they're questioning whether he's an apostle. And it's definitely certain that those challenges that we see to his authority and his apostleship stem from the factions. That's where the challenges come from. Paul's apostleship is called into question, listen to this, because he will not accept the factions. That's a part of the reason why they challenge him in the first place. It's because he will not accept the factions or the misinterpretations he has aimed to correct in the epistle so far that flows from the factions. So he won't take their false views on uh, marriage. He won't take their false views related to worship. He won't settle for the factions that they have erected to praise one another. And so they begin to challenge his authority because he won't rest in the things that they're resting in. But all questions and arguments against his apostleship are all invalid in light of verse 1 primarily. So even as we move through this epistle, even as we reach the end of this epistle and launch into 2 Corinthians I want you to think back to this particular chapter, and I want you to think back specifically to verses 1 and uh, one to 4 uh, and all the way through this chapter, because all of the arguments against his apostleship are invalid in light of what has already been said in verse 1 of chapter 9. It's invalid. First, we see he's an apostle because he's free. He's an apostle because he's free. It's not something that he has bestowed on himself. He hasn't constrained himself to it. He's not an apostle elected by men. He's not an elected official of the people. He's an apostle because he's free. He is free in Christ. That is the designation I want you to make in his mind. So every challenge to Paul's apostleship 
is a challenge against the Christ who liberates, and it's a challenge against Paul who is truly free in Christ. But he's free in Christ, and therefore, if he's free in Christ, he's born again. And he is then an apostle because he had seen the risen Christ. He had seen the risen Christ. And so all arguments against him being an apostle, all the things that people would say that would essentially try to render his apostolic ministry void. It was because he had seen the risen Christ. And he says that explicitly. It is because he is born again. It is because he is a free man, not simply a free man in light of slavery in the culture of the day, but he's free. He's truly a free man in Christ. Divine things. He's truly an apostle. He had seen the Lord. But he had not only seen him because what comes through in Paul's epistles is he had been commissioned by him. And he had been sent to the churches by the Lord. So you see, essentially, Paul says this in questions that are posed in a negative. But these questions are all answered in the positive sense. Am I not free? Yes, he is free. Am I not an apostle? Yes, he is an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord? Uh, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes, they are. And so Paul is setting up for them the fact that God has worked in Paul as a born again believer and an apostle and God's work is evident in their lives if they're walking with him. And so Paul points out to them that they are also to be free men. The apostles' labors could be seen in others. His labor could be seen in them. Even in the Corinthians to this point. But those labors were not his own. He didn't identify them with being attached to him or else he'd be just as guilty as the factions that were erected. The difference in what Paul says is essentially listed in verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for what? You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So then it would stand to reason that the Corinthians are testifying to Paul's apostleship in Christ, assuming they indeed, they indeed walk with Christ. So then it stands that these things are truly not up for debate, but they are debated. They're debated amongst the Corinthians. They're not up for debate, but they are debated. Verse 2 shows for us that they could look at themselves if they really wanted to contest Paul's apostleship or if they wanted to believe Paul's apostleship. They could look at themselves. He was that near to Christ in his walk. For he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And they could see whether they were truly in Christ since Paul, Paul the apostle, was sent for a very specific purpose to them. And he makes that purpose known to them. So far, we have gone through what in our Bible's construction is nine chapters, one full letter that's been written so far. And to this point, Paul has made that abundantly clear. He's made it very clear. I've come to you for a specific reason. I'm coming to correct these issues. I'm coming to help and exhort you or to rebuke you if need be. I'm coming to strengthen you in the things that Jesus has already established for the churches. 
And so they were very clear what the Lord had for them. Their response is another thing altogether. But I would also say that Paul's defense was a little more detailed. If you look at verse 3, it says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Paul wasn't against being examined. He was against being examined on non-biblical terms. And so he said, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? He's tying it to what he has said before. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? He's tying that also to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Even as the rest of the apostles, they're married. And the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Paul welcomed, as I said, the scrutiny. And every godly person welcomes scrutiny. However, the scrutiny needs to be biblical. Scrutiny needs to be biblical. Paul welcomed biblical questions. He welcomed scrutiny so long as that scrutiny was not based on trying to enslave or confine someone's uh, conscience or bind them to the other person's conscience. Or that conclusions were not being made that were non-biblical. Because, see, Paul was scrutinized from both perspectives. He was scrutinized from those who wanted nothing to do with Christ, from those who were pretending to be in Christ, and for those, uh, from those who actually were in Christ. Paul always commended those who were in Christ for their scrutiny. And I don't mean scrutiny like nitpicking. I mean that they were trying to ensure that things aligned to God's will in both his testimony and in his life. But the freedom in Christ was theirs, and the freedom in Christ is theirs to examine. But he tells them, I want you to examine things in the Lord, because you are his workmanship. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So therefore, you can't step outside of the Lord's will and begin to examine things. But mainly, he applies them to the very practical things that were up for debate amongst the Corinthians. You have to understand that factions are themselves a trivial thing. They also lead to engaging in debates about trivial matters, things that are very clear that are now made confusing. And so Paul sought to establish freedom in the areas that had been confused by those who were in sin and sinning in the factions those who were partaking of immorality, and even as we see Satan entering in uh, by taking opportunity amongst those who were idolatrous and immoral. But he makes a point that I believe is very simple, and I believe that you have to hold on to this and you have to cling to it. Listen to this. The apostles were free to eat and they were free to drink. They were not constrained, neither are you, they were not constrained to the misapplications and misinterpretations of the world system or those who were weak in the faith. They were not constrained to those. They were constrained to the Lord's will. Now what you'll see is a selflessness that Paul advocates for. That in these freedoms you have to consider the weaker conscience. You have to consider that you can partake of the, app, uh, the opportunity or the activity, but you must ensure that that does not cause someone to be ensnared. And so there's freedom in this. They were free to eat and drink. They were not constrained 
to arrogance, or as we discovered in chapter 8, the arrogance and misapplied knowledge. They were not constrained to the arrogance and misapplied knowledge that puffed people up. They weren't constrained to that. You're not constrained to live in legalism, superstition, people's non-biblical conclusions about life. You're not constrained to that. Because if you walk away from your freedom, you'll be enslaved to those things. You'll live your life in people's perceptions, unbiblical perceptions. They were not constrained to this. They were not constrained to the things that made people self-righteously proud to live that way. They were not constrained to go the way of legalism and, as I've said, superstition. Because very much that took place, especially in the way of idolatry, was legalistic and superstitious. By that I mean a person can perform their way to righteousness or a person ought to avoid things, as Paul talks about in uh, Colossae, they're to avoid things that would somehow, uh, somehow throw them off of their walk when those things are really superstitious conclusions. Paul here in verses 4 and 5 is touching on some of the things he has already said. He is also moving toward addressing a new one, which we will see in a minute in verse 6. We'll talk about that. But in verses 4 and 5, Paul shows the apostles have a right to eat and drink. They don't have to go on living in perpetual fasting or trying to show people that they're apostles by what they do or don't do in terms of the simple things in life. They were to be joyful in God's provision for nourishment. We talked about that. We talked about how these things were being perverted, how food is so much used in a sacrificial way in that time and in our time. That food is used uh, in such a way so as to distract people from God's provision, from the purpose for which he's established us to eat and to enjoy drink. He says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? They had the right and divine liberty to enjoy God's good grace in taking for themselves wives. They were allowed to do so. This is not like the cults of today. It's not like several of the false religions that are out there that prohibit people from marriage on some self-righteous standard. Specifically, Paul says about himself, I had the right to do so. I'm permitted to marry. There's no there's been no command from the Lord to prohibit myself or the apostles or the brothers of the Lord. To take for themselves wives. One wife for one man. Even Peter himself took this blessed liberty to take a wife for himself. That is what Paul says. Then in verse 6, Paul begins a new defense beyond this. Because he's already established everything concerning this. What he's about to say next, he's going to work through and establish. And I believe that it is because there was an incorrect view or incorrect practice. Or misapplied knowledge that leads to sinful arrogance in this area as well. 
But he begins to build a new defense to his apostleship. For he and Barnabas labored for wages, as is the idea in working as it's written in verse 6. But there were also times that they refrained. And I believe it's why he says it the way he does. Look at verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now we know about Paul that at times he did labor with his hands. We know that from Acts. We know that he was a tent maker at times. And we also know that at times he refrained from working. And he didn't refrain from working out of laziness or out of entitlement. He refrained from working because... In the timeline that the Lord had given him to accomplish his ministry, it was impractical at times to work in a conventional way. The scope and reach of what God had designed for him and his apostolic ministry in the New Testament world at times did not allow him to work. For he would be brought before rulers and governors, and that would cause an antagonism toward him in that society, and he would be imprisoned for much of his ministry he was. It's impractical to, uh, to work in that case. And so therefore, he was supported in some cases. But this is a defense of his apostleship. And even in that defense, you'll see later, they labored. It is why he says it the way he does. Yes, they have the right to refrain from earning their wages through the labors of their hands, as we'll see later, if they were to earn their wages in the employ of advancing God's will among the churches. They certainly had the right to do so. And Paul sets that up in the arguments that follow our text. For further down in verse 12, I want you to look at that. In verse 12, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we, do, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. When we get to verse 12 in our text, we will see later how they did not assume this right for themselves. So as to not abuse the right, nor to be accused of abusing the right. But the right was certainly theirs. Make no mistake about that. The right was certainly theirs. They had the right to make their living from the gospel. But they forego that right in order to reach many. In order to not be defamed. In order to not be slandered. In order for people to not take that as a transactional relationship. One that could be manipulated and prodded. So they didn't use the right, but the right was certainly theirs. And I do believe that some were making more of this than what it was. And I believe that's why Paul brings it up. It goes back to verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. So he's examined along these lines and he's providing a defense along these lines. He's saying, here's my thinking. Not only my thinking, here's what the Lord would have us do. Here is God's will. And so in these areas, he begins to deal with this. But he did not want to be accused by men. He did not want people to charge him with playing parlor games with people, with trying to get rich from the gospel itself, with trying to charge people for hearing the gospel, with eliciting a speaker's fee 
or an entertainment fee in order for people to hear what he had to say. Paul and Barnabas, as it is said here, took for themselves gainful employment. They took for themselves gainful employment so as not to be personal hindrances to the gospel. Look at this. Do you not know? Verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? They're always in the temple. They live, they live from the temple. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Look at verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But look at what he says in 15. But I have used none of these things. Now I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not advocating for myself. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Paul is saying, I don't want to come to you and nullify my boast in Christ by you making this a transactional thing between us. But he was charged with doing that and he wasn't even doing it. And so Paul is saying, I want us to consider that these rights are mine to take. Be it to eat and drink freely, be it to take for myself a believing wife, be it to make my living from the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not using any of these rights, but they're mine. But I'm not using them. And I'm not holding it over your conscience that I'm not using them. I'm saying I don't want to use them because if I use them, it may hinder you from my testimony. And I don't want to hinder you. I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. Paul and Barnabas take for themselves gainful employment. And I want to say that the apostles did reserve this right. They did reserve this right. We must not pretend it's an elephant in the room. We must not shy away from it. They did reserve the right. But here Paul goes to military infrastructure. He is not here invoking military or business pragmatism. He's showing you infrastructure. He's showing you how even as you think about this simply, the world's infrastructures help you think about how to compensate people and how to compensate people for services and labor. He's saying that. For look at what he says first, verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. I mean, you can think of his time, even the Romans Got this part right. They rationed things to their soldiers. The soldiers were able to partake of whatever uh, was theirs as they launched military campaigns and were traveling throughout uh, trying to gain advantages for the empire. They were partakers of the advantages of that. They were taken care of beyond the ordinary citizens. So he goes to their structure, not their pragmatism. But he also strikes the Corinthians this way. He says this. He is appealing to how even the world values service and compensates for service. Now, I'm not saying they do it perfectly, but Paul is saying, look at the military. Look at how the soldier functions and look at how the soldier is compensated. Then he then he goes to 
the agrarian society. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? And then he goes to shepherding in the literal sense. Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So it's these individuals are not serving at their own expense. They are rather at the expense of the ones who place them into service. That's his point. It's at the expense of the one who placed them at the service. Well, then it would stand to certainly reason among the apostles and among those even in the future. That it is those who are placed in the service by the Lord and they are sustained by him. But if one is to be a hindrance, I believe the helpful application here is to abstain. If it will be a hindrance as such, a hindrance for the cause and the freedom of the gospel to be proclaimed and to be received in all of its fullness, uh, all of its fullness, then it is certainly to be abstained. His appeal is not to, however, I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. His appeal is not to find some inherent good in the world system. That's not what Paul is doing. Rather, Paul's appeal and his defense is that the world system has borrowed from what has been established in the law of Moses. So he's saying the world values these things because we first find them as God has ordered society amongst the Israelites with respect to the law of Moses. With respect to the Mosaic Covenant. With respect to bringing uh, the uh, Jews out of Egypt where they were being forced into hard labor earning nothing. And he took care of them and called them and provided for them along the way. And then commissions them to the promised land and orders their affairs amongst themselves. Very down, uh, very much down to, the, to uh, the laws we find in Leviticus. Very much down to what Paul uh, establishes in Romans about how they live and how Moses establishes how they should live in the second generation after God destroys the first in Deuteronomy. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Look at verse 8. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So he's saying, I'm not simply giving you a societal mandate. I'm telling you that the law of Moses dealt with this amongst the Israelites. Look at what he says in verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Well, what, that mean is, what that means is you're impeding the ox from partaking as the ox is working. And so he says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Now he goes right to it because the plowman ought to plow in hope. Ought to plow in hope. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to anything. He doesn't want us to even think that we're so confined to the gospel that now we see it as a hindrance for ourselves. We ought to preach in hope. We ought to labor in hope. It is why there is blessing in the proclamation. But Paul is also very plain. 
the thresher to thresh in hope or sharing in the hope of sharing the crops. You and I want to be partakers in what has been reaped from what has been sown. If we sowed, he's speaking of the apostles primarily, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? I believe Paul left no no, uh, stone unturned when he was dealing with this issue. But as you look at verse 7, as we back up, his appeal is, as I mentioned, to the agrarian societies, the societies of agriculture in the New Testament, and then to the nature of shepherding flocks in the literal sense in the world before him. For in each case, the one who serves, listen to this, is a partaker in what has been cultivated. The one who serves is a partaker in what has been cultivated. This is essentially tied to the true sense of reaping and sowing within the Mosaic law. One who is a partaker should expect, not with arrogance or pretense, not with arrogance or pretense, to reap what has been sown. But listen, the one who does not reap where he has sown does not become disheartened because he does not reap. The one who does not reap where he has sown does not quit trying to sow. So the expectation is not one of arrogance or pretense. Or I'll just go find a place that actually does this. Because that's how so many think. They think with arrogance and pretense. Positively speaking, in verse 7, the soldier is serving. He's laboring. He could expect food, clothing, and shelter from his services. He could expect that. He could expect his needs to be met as he goes on serving. And so, too, the one who plants the vineyard. He does not go on to plant and to cultivate and then enjoy no fruits of what has been cultivated. What hope would there then be in that? He is blessed to partake. It's a blessing for him to partake. Then, too, the one who tends to the flock. The flock yields for him sheep's milk here in this context. Therefore, when he is thirsty, he can drink from what his flock provides. He has had a hand in their growth and in their produce. So to move beyond just the literal, Paul appeals, as I mentioned, to the law. He appeals to the law, not simply to human reason, human judgment and human understanding. For these things disclose to us God's working within the law. You know the difference between what God desires for freedom and the Christians caring for one another? The world cares for infrastructure. God wants his people to care for people. That's the difference. Because that's what Paul is saying. Paul is not speaking of Rome's beautification projects. He's saying, I want you to care for each other. We have labored for you, therefore we can expect that our labors would be met with some compassion. And then round and round it goes. I will then give of myself and of what I have towards you in a compassionate sense. And I can expect that that would also be reciprocated. I believe it's the true essence of what he says in Romans. Mutual honor amongst one another. Rendering honor amongst uh, those who are honorable, but also later on in this particular text, when he talks about that we show love and honor to those in the body of Christ who are typically seen as lesser than. 
that those are the ones we honor. He calls them the more the less presentable members. It is typical of the modern evangelical context to render honor and honor and an abundance of honor on people who are presentable out in front. I believe Paul modeled that for us in Romans 16. He begins to show honor to people who are less presentable, but their names etched in the eternal word of God. I don't believe here that Paul is advocating and manipulating and wrestling with people to pay me my money. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I love you. I labor for you. And these rights are mine. But I'm not going to take these rights because I want the gospel to be unimpeded from launching forward. And I believe that he's striking against what is a construct in the churches uh, that are raising up around that time. uh, Led by the super apostles, led by false teachers, but also the schools of philosophy who are very religious and idolatrous in nature. Who are pushing people away from God's knowledge and commanding a fee and a living from it. Paul wanted to be separate from all of it. And I believe he's worthy in that situation. He's worthy of Christ, but he's worthy of the most compensation. And he forgoed his right for all of it. But I believe that what he's saying is that these things are not something I'm advocating for. These things are clear in the law of Moses. Next time we will examine exactly how this defense is applied to both the Mosaic context and the New Covenant context in verses 9 and beyond.